This sermon was recorded at the Midtown Congregation of Redeemer Fellowship, a church that exists to cultivate communities of transformed disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of the city. For more information, visit RedeemerKansasCity.org. Today's scripture is Isaiah 65, verses 17 through 25, which can be found on page 624 of the Pew Bibles around you. Isaiah 65, verse 17. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old, and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. For they will call, before they will call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. Amen. Good morning. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the beautiful and precious promises that you have given to us. Thank you that you always fulfill your promises, that every single one of them is certain and sure, unfailing, kept by you. God, I ask this morning that you would uh, open our eyes. Would you soften our hearts? Would you make us receptive and responsive to your word? God, as we find ourselves in the midst of a world that is, Paul says, even creation itself groans under the weight of the effects of sin and brokenness and pain and sorrow. God, and we groan under the weight of the effects of sin, its pain, its sorrow. God, would you let this word strengthen us this morning? Would you let this word give us hope this morning? Would you let this word reorient us this morning? Would you let this word, like we even see in it, make our hearts glad and joyful, even in the midst of sorrow and pain? God, would you show us yourself? Would you speak, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so last week we, uh, we looked at the opening sections of Isaiah 65, and uh, what we saw in this passage, if you weren't with us, is this chapter, Isaiah 65, in some ways could be seen as an answer from God to Isaiah's question that he asked at the end of his prayer in chapter 64. He closed his prayer with this petition to God, will you remain silent forever? 
Will you restrain yourself toward us? What is happening right now that we can't make sense of how you're at work and it feels to us or we perceive that you are distant and far off and restrained in your desires toward us, in your goodness and in your grace? And into that question, God speaks a word to demonstrate to the prophet what he's at work doing in the middle of the delay. This section of Isaiah is specifically written by Isaiah to a future people. We've talked about this again and again. A future people at his time who would be returning from exile and they would be finding themselves in this tension between God's promise to save them and the fulfillment of that. Between the reality of him speaking and the evidence of that manifest in their lives. We find ourselves in a similar spot between the times uh, as the people of God, having tasted the salvation of God in Christ Jesus and yet waiting for the consummation of all of his purposes and his promises. So like I said last week, we opened the beginning of this. I made it about two-thirds through the sermon, if you were here at the 8.30 last week, I actually only made it through about one-third of the sermon. So uh, you can go back and listen to the 10.30. I shortened it up and, and got through a little bit more, but still found myself not able to preach the whole text. So I'm going to finish Isaiah 65 here, and then if, you're, if you want to stick around, I'm going to preach Isaiah 66 at the 10.30. Uh, <laughs> so that we can be done. They'll both be online. Uh, But what we saw last week is, again, into this question about what God's doing in the delay. What is God doing when it seems like he's far off and silent? God speaks in, and we saw last week, two answers that he gives about what he's actually doing in the midst of the waiting. The first thing he said is, I'm pursuing a rebellious people. So Isaiah asks this question, will you be silent forever? Will you restrain yourself to us? And immediately God breaks in and says, I'm ready to be found. I'm ready to be sought. It's, it's the people who have rebelled against me, have not called upon me, and they have not sought after me. I am ready all day long. I hold my hands open to people who are stiff-necked and rebellious. I am at work right now, says the Lord. That's the first thing we saw. The second thing we saw is God speaks in and he says, I'm at work saving from among the people a remnant who will be mine. Now we come to the end of Isaiah 65 and these verses provide for us a picture designed to strengthen us as we still live in this delay. The previous sections declared that God is actually at work. He's not silent. He's not restrained. But these verses show us that no matter what it looks like in this present age, even if we do experience it as his restraint or his silence, he breaks in and says, there will be a day when it will no longer be like that. There will be a day when the delay is over and the full and final purposes of God will be accomplished and they will be known throughout all the world. Isaiah 65, 17 to 25 is one of the most remarkable passages of the age to come found in the Old Testament. It's a dynamic word of hope that's meant to sustain a people who are faced with all of the temptations that come in the midst of waiting. Temptations for being offended at how God is working. Temptations of discouragement or disillusionment or despair. This word comes to us as a strengthening, hope-filled word to give us uh, confidence as we wait. No matter what we now perceive, God thunders into our waiting and declares that he is creating a new heavens and a new earth. He's working comprehensively to bring about such a profound work of redemption 
of the whole created order that it will be said, we see here, that the former things won't even be remembered. God always fuels and sustains faithful obedience to himself through the midst of this world by pointing his people to the time when he'll make all things new. He invites us to believe this with the saints throughout history, that there is a city awaiting us, a city whose builder and maker is God. This is what the writer of Hebrews does in chapter 11 of Hebrews. When speaking of Abraham, he said, Abraham looked forward to a day with confidence that there was a city being prepared for him whose builder and maker is God. And though he died not having seen it, it stabilized himself in faithful obedience to God all through his days. So that's what we're gonna look at when we come to these verses today. And the way that I wanna do it is look at God's portrait of new creation through three elements. There's three things that I think we can see here. There's what is God replacing? That's verses 17 to 20. God is replacing things. The second thing is what is God reversing? That's verses 21 to 23. And lastly, what is God restoring? God's replacing some things. He's reversing some things, and he's restoring some things. So let's look at the text together. God's work of replacing in his new creation. So the first three verses of this break in and show us that God is doing something new. He's creating again, and it contains three pictures. This this first section of replacing in verses 17 to 20, it shows us three pictures of God exchanging something new for something old, something that will transcend what we experience now in the midst of what we presently know and see. The first thing he says is the new will replace the old. The new will replace the old. That's verse 17. Read it with me. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered or even come into mind. So the Lord breaks in and begins this passage by commanding the people, exhorting the people to look at him as he does something. Behold your God. Look at him as he goes about his work of new creation. He says that his work will ultimately be to create a new heavens and a new earth. Now, this phrase throughout the Old Testament speaks of the entirety of the created order. If you go all the way back to Genesis 1, 1, when God speaks and creates the heavens and the earth, what the, that uh, phrase in the Hebrew Bible speaks of the entirety of the created order. So what God is saying here is, watch me as I set out to recreate a new created order. Every single part of the created realm will be utterly and perfectly and fully and finally transformed qualitatively. Throughout Isaiah, the heavens and the earth have been used at really defining moments in Isaiah's narrative and in his prophecy. At the beginning of the work, you don't have to turn there, but if, if you go back to chapter one, the second verse of Isaiah, the opening words of his prophetic utterance, God calls the heavens and the earth, the entire created order, into the witness stand. He says, watch and listen and be witnesses against my people. So the heavens and the earth are first called into watching and and witnesses as God lays out charges against his people. Then, if you flip forward quite a bit to Isaiah 49, they're again called into witness to watch God as he sets about his work of salvation. 
he says, begin to sing heavens and rejoice earth because I'm going to take these people who I've indicted and charged and brought their their rap sheet against them and I am going to save them. Watch. Now, at the end of the book, we get this profound insight that not only are they going to be called to watch as God puts the indictment against his people, not only are they called to rejoice at his work, they themselves are going to be the recipients of his transforming power. The idea of new here is not that the Lord is going to start over from nothing, but rather that there will be a qualitative difference so remarkable and so comprehensive that it only can be said to be new, right? This is what Paul picks up on in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter five when he says, in Christ, we are new creation, right? We are a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. He's not saying when you are born again, God literally unmakes you and then makes you again, right? He's saying the difference qualitatively that is happening in your life is so marked by a different reality that it is to be said that you are new. What was everything that marked you before is gone and now everything that is true about you is new. This act will be so comprehensive that the former things, meaning the life in this present age, won't even be brought to remembrance nor will it come into the heart, Isaiah says. This statement is not saying that there's literally gonna be nothing that you remember about this life. Uh, You might be going like, I'm not gonna remember my friends or what I did for all of my life. Like I'm gonna show up and be a completely blank canvas. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is there will be such a contrast between the way that this age works and the way that that age works, that you won't remember what filled your mind and your emotional struggles and the pain and the sorrow, they'll be gone. Think about it this way. Think about how much time you spend navigating the brokenness of this world internally. Think about it, right? Like as you live through your difficult life, whether that's... uh, anxiety, whether it's relational discord and you're like rehearsing things in your mind and it's consuming energy. Think about the loss of a loved one, death, sorrow, pain in our bodies, suffering, all of these things. Think about how much energy you put into navigating the emotional struggle of life in this world. What he's saying is when we enter into this new creation, this new order of being, your internal world won't even remember how you did that, right? Like that won't fill your mind. All that will fill your mind is the glory of God, the beauty of Jesus, the majesty of his power, his grace, your life will be so new that the way of making sense of the world in this age, all of the energy and time and emotional like work that goes into walking through this life won't even be remembered. I was laughing to myself this morning as I I was thinking about it. We all know this in like small ways, right? Like small, really petty ways. I was thinking about uh, our family from 2013 to 2015, lived in Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, I went to seminary and I sold women's shoes. I got a world's worth of sermon illustrations in two and a half years. Uh, But what's amazing is when we moved back after that season, it probably wasn't six months, 12 months, to where all I have about that season is fond memories. My kids were all under 10. Uh, We just like built really awesome family memories. We fell in love with a place. Like we 
I, I, I just have unbelievable memories about it. And I'll go like, man, wouldn't it be awesome to like go back and da, 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 da. And Abby will look at me and be like, hey, do you remember how much you hated that? Um, it's like, I don't even remember the internal angst of like coming home and going, I can't even believe like another sale, like blah, 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 like all of those things. I can't even remember that six months removed from it. All I remember because I have perspective, I have understanding of what God was doing. I see the beauty of like what deposits we made as a family. I see those things really clearly and the difficulties of them now removed. I barely even remember them. That's what he's saying is going on on a infinite scale. He's saying there will be such a qualitative difference that all of the difficulties of this world, you won't even bring them into your heart. They won't even come into your thoughts. What a word of beautiful hope. The nature of the new heavens and the new earth will be such that the disorder, the brokenness, the futility of this present age won't even be remembered. God will eradicate sin, its effects, in such a comprehensive manner that they won't be remembered. He is declaring to us that though we live through moments of great sorrow, great distress, great pain, that there's brokenness, futility, there will be a day when God's redemption will be so full, so final, so complete that we won't even remember it. We won't remember the struggle of it, the sorrow of it. We will see him in his glory and that will be what transfixes us. The second thing he says, so we see the new replaces the old. The second thing he says is that joy and gladness replace sorrow and pain. That's verses 18 and 19. Look here, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping or the cry of distress. So into this, God's people are now again exhorted, commanded to be glad and rejoice in the reality that he is at work to bring about a new creation. Like many times we've seen throughout Isaiah, the people of God are invited into responding now to what God is certain to do in the future. Not saying that it takes away the sorrow or the pain or the hardship, but to in faith and in hope, he says, be glad and take joy for I am doing this. He says, because God is working to make his people to be a joy and to delight in them and be glad in them, we are called to respond with joy and with gladness, not hollow, sentimental, like superficial happiness, but a hope-filled rejoicing that God in his goodness will accomplish everything that he promised. And there will be a day when all that is broken and wrong sin, its effects will be gone and dealt with and he will bring forth his life and goodness and power forever. The contrast of this section is that the work that the Lord is doing to bring about eternal joy will replace the sorrow, the weeping, the pain of this age, the pain and sorrow that marks our lives today will be replaced, will be removed. He says there will be joy and gladness. And I want you to see something. This is, I, I love the beauty of the interplay between what God is at work doing and what we are called or invited into even now. He says, be glad and rejoice now because 
I'm going to make my people joyful and make them glad. So he's doing the work. We're called to respond. And then he says, not only will I make them joyful and glad, I will be joyful and glad in them. I will share with them my delight, my joy, my gladness forever. And it will replace weeping, sorrow, pain. This is what the, uh, the apostle John will pick up in Revelation where he says, God himself will come and wipe away every tear from every eye and joy will replace the sorrow of this life we see. The third thing, the third picture that we get in this opening section is that life will replace death. That life will replace death. Now we we read this here in verse 20. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. Now these pictures on the surface are beautiful. They're not hard to understand. Isaiah portrays for us a day when mortality will no longer exist. And he paints it in this picture of if someone died at a hundred years old, they would be considered a young man. However, like these, these passages at times, like people get in this weird place of like, is there death in the new heavens and new earth? Is there, is there like, he's saying that, that, that someone that dies at a hundred is going to be considered a young man. Like what's, what's going on here? I don't think that what he's getting at is that there will be death in the new heavens. That's not what's happening. We see that elsewhere in the scripture, even in Isaiah, Isaiah 25, he says that he will swallow up death forever and he will wipe away tears from the faces. So this is not Isaiah going, there's a day coming in the future when God will come and then there's going to be death there. Think about it this way. Think about a society where the majority of people whether they or someone in their close proximity had walked through the death of a child, something that was near to almost everyone in that moment. And what Isaiah is doing is he's trying to paint a picture in the minds of his hearers going, they're not living in a time with modern medical things, right? This has touched every single one of his hearers. And he goes, this day is going to be so glorious that if someone died at 100, I mean, can you even imagine that? We don't even live to 100. But he's saying if a child lived to 100 and died, it would be unthinkable. He's painting a portrait of this unbelievably beautiful, idyllic world in which the sorrows of death and pain and hardship will be gone forever. They will be gone forever. No longer will death be what marks our lives. He says there's a day when death will be replaced with life with life forever. New replaces the old. Joy replaces mourning. Life replaces death. He goes on and he says, not only is this going to be a world of replacing, this is going to be a world of reversing. In verses 21 to 23, we see God's work of new creation will reverse things that have cursed this world. And I want you to see two particular ways that he does this here. In verse 21 and 22, he says, the curses that have come upon you because of disobedience to the covenant, they will be gone. Verse 21, they will build houses and inhabit them. 
They'll plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They won't build and another come in and take their, their, their stuff. They won't plant and another person eat. Their days will be like the days of the tree and the chosen among them will long enjoy the work of their hands. God begins this promise by showing that his people will build houses and dwell in them. They'll plant vineyards and eat of them. This language is clear. If you're not familiar with the Old Testament, you you might miss what's happening here. But in Deuteronomy chapter 28, as the children of God are going into the land, he recounts the covenant with them. And as he gets to the end, Moses stands in front of the people and he says, if you go into the land and you obey God, if you walk in his ways and submit yourself to him, he will bless you in these ways. And if you do not obey, he will curse you in these ways. If you are disobedient, if you are rebellious, if you are stiff-necked, he will bring about these curses on you. One of the curses is the reverse of exactly what we're seeing here. In Deuteronomy 28, 30, I'll just read it for you. He says it this way. This is under the heading, if you go in the land and you disobey my covenant, he says, you will build a house and you will not dwell in it. You will plant a vineyard and you will not enjoy its fruit. What he's saying is, you'll do all the work, and then because you are separated from me, because of your disobedience, you will work, you will toil, you will labor, but I will bring someone else to come and take it from you. What Isaiah sees here is God says, no longer will the world be marked by the curses that have come because of your disobedience. He's saying all of the effects of sin in the world will be gone, which implies that his people will obey obey him, right? There's There's this whisper of like a new covenant reality, even in this promise, because if this promise was given and said, I will do these things if you're in covenant relationship with me, the implication is God's people are in relationship with him. They live in communion with him. We see here that God undoes the curses of the covenant, but he goes on and he goes all the way back to the initial curses of Genesis 3. Look at verse 23. They will not labor in vain. Or bear children for calamity. For they will be the offspring of, of, the, of the blessed of the Lord. And their descendants will be with them. Does that sound like anything? It sounds like the curses that came to Adam and Eve. For initial sin, right? Your work will be marked with vanity, futility. Your labor will be toilsome. You will work and work and work and creation will stand against you. It won't be like a willing dance partner that walks in step with you. It will stand against you and work against you. And by the sweat of your brow and by the toil of your hands, you'll have to work against it. And childbearing will be difficult for you. It will bring forth difficulty and pain and hardship. And Isaiah here sees a day where we will no longer labor in vain or bear children for calamity. He says the curses that have marked creation from the jump will no longer be around. I will undo all of the effects of sin and its destructive power in this world. God says about this, the day when this comes. So we see that it replaces, we see that it reverses. Look with me at the last two verses. God says the new creation will bring restoration. You could say it brings a restoration of peace or order or congruence in the way things are supposed to be. Verse 24 shows that God will be at peace with his people. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. So the meaning of this is really clear. In the new creation, God will be so near to his people 
that he will answer their cries before they even utter them and will listen to them while they are speaking. Again, go all the way back. If Isaiah 65 in some ways is a response to Isaiah's question, why are you restrained? Why are you silent? God says there's a day coming when before you even ask me, I will answer you. I will be at such close proximity to you. My nearness, my presence, my uh, communion, intimacy with the uncreated God will be so close between him and his people that he says it will be like, you don't even open your mouth to ask me something and I'll do it. Can you even imagine, right? All we know is the age where we're marked by the gap, right? We ask, God, would you do this? I don't quite see how you're doing it. I have to look through this cloudy glass of faith to look and believe that you're at work even when you don't work the way that I think you should work or the way that I can perceive that you're at work. It's hard for me to grasp it. It's hard for me to see it. It's hard for me to understand it. And God says, there's a day when you won't even open your mouth, I'll answer your questions. I'll be so near to you. We'll be in such step of communion and intimacy and proximity that you won't even ask me before I thunder in and answer your cries. I will be so near to you. That which was broken in Genesis 3, the severing of relationship with God by sin will not only be restored in the way that we've experienced through the down payment that we've been given by the Spirit, but it will be fully manifest where God's presence dwells with his people in absolute, complete fullness all the time. I will be near, says the Lord. This is, again, what I think Paul is describing when he says, We now walk by faith. He's saying we look in a mirror that's like cloudy and dirty and dingy. We have to like strain our eyes and look deeply. We have to like, do you remember those 3D pictures that were cool in the 90s where you had to go cross-eyed and, you know, do the whole thing to to find them? That's kind of like what walking in this world is, right? We have, to, we have to believe that there's something else going on than what's just present before our eyes. We have to strain by faith and ask God to strengthen us by faith. And he says, there's a day when you will no longer have to look by faith. You will see by sight. You'll walk in and it will be all clear. God says, in the new creation, you won't even ask me before I answer you. I will be so close to you. I will be so near to you. I will restore that, the Lord says. And then we see in verse 25 that all of creation itself will be at peace. This is the biblical pattern, right? Humans created to dwell in communion with God, made in his image, then to express his goodness into creation. We sever that through sin, we separate relationship, and then all of created order gets thrust into the reality of this curse, subjected to futility in brokenness and in destruction. God says, I will reorient, bring peace between us in communion, and I will bring peace to all the earth. The wolf and the lamb will graze together. The lion will eat straw like the ox and the dust shall be the serpent's food. They will not hurt. They will not destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. So we see creation itself will be brought back to peace. I love the three pictures here that are given. The first is the wolf and the lamb grazing together. The second is the lion eating straw like the cattle these pictures of fierce animals becoming uh, tame and peaceful. But I love that God says the eternal enemy, 
he's, he, nothing changes. The snake still eats dust. That picture is telling us that he is going to destroy the, full, the, the enemy, the adversary, the serpent forever. Forever and forever. He says, everything will be remade and the adversary against God's people, my adversary will be judged forever. So how do we respond here? Like, what do we, what do, we do with this picture, right? Like, this is a remarkable, beautiful, glorious picture given to us by God to strengthen us and to stabilize us in the midst of the world. I want to just give a couple invitations as we look at this, as we look at this passage together. The first thing that I would invite us to do, and I've said this a bunch of times through Isaiah as we've come to passages like this, spend time meditating on the age to come. Spend time meditating on the age to come. Paul talks about set your mind on things above, things eternal, things that will last. There's this draw in the New Testament particularly that we receive stability and strength in this life by meditating on God's kingdom and the promises that he has given to us. That is, again, the entire argument of Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11 says, starts with the amazing phrase, faith is the evidence or the assurance of things hoped for. What I think the author is getting at there is he's saying, hey, we all hope for things. We all hope for things. We want things to be better than they are today. Every single one of us is hardwired to know this isn't the way it's supposed to be. And we all hope for something to be different tomorrow. We all hope for it. Are you sure that it can happen? That's a question we all have to ask. Are we sure that what we want has the power to really change the world in the way we want it to? Can political change bring the lasting new creation reality that you really long for in your soul? Can social change, can cultural change, can it bring it? Do you have certainty that the things that you hope for can actually reorient all of creation? Can it stop death? Can it replace the old with the new? Can it give you joy and peace and gladness for eternity? Meditate on God's promises of the day when he will do those things. By his spirit, that will give us certainty as we walk through this world. That's what the author of Hebrews is doing in chapter 11. Hey, all these people that went before you, they died and they never saw it, but they were convinced that he was and he was good and he would reward those who diligently seek them. Not reward them with like material blessings and ease in this life. Actually just read Hebrews 11, he rarely does that. What, what he rewards them with is himself and a city that he has made that's foundations cannot be shaken and where life replaces death and joy replaces pain and new replaces old, where everything is in harmony and order and peace forever. That's what he will give. So meditate on those things. Take these kind of passages and fill your mind with them and ask the Spirit of God to convince you by his power that this is what God will do. The second thing that we can do is receive this word as a means to be strengthened today, as a means to be strengthened in the midst of the waiting. Like I've said again and again throughout the scripture, the primary way, one of the primary ways we re receive strength in the midst of this broken and fallen world is by setting our minds on the things that are to come. We recognize that we live today by faith, but there will be a day when we live by sight. So this message is meant to strengthen us, to, to strengthen our feeble knees and our hands that are drooping down, right? 
as we walk through this world and it wears on us and we are tempted to despair and sorrow and offense and discouragement, these words strengthen us and give us faith that God is working a glory that will last for eternity that Paul says will make the momentary light afflictions of this world seem like nothing. Or as Isaiah says here, the former things won't even be remembered. Receive this, be glad, rejoice. The last thing, the cool, the cool thing that we have as those who believe in Jesus is we get to put our anchors in two places. Old Testament saints, they had only the future reality to put their anchor in. They had God's promises. They had ways that God would show up and fulfill his word in part, but they had future promises that they had to anchor themselves into. We have that. We have future promises that we still anchor ourselves into, but we have a past demonstration where God's new creation broke into the world that we get to look back and put our anchor in in the past as well. At the cross, Jesus paid the price to accomplish every promise of God. With the resurrection, this is what we get to celebrate next week at Easter. If the resurrection happened, right? If it's real, concrete, historical fact, which it is. Paul says it's the first fruits. What we actually get to look back at is all that God promised here about a new creational realm, a new creation age where these things would be true, that has already broken into this world. Paul says Jesus's resurrection is like the first fruits to show us that there's another harvest where God will fully, finally, perfectly, ultimately bring forth his work of new creation on a cosmic scale. We don't just have to look forward and go, God, I believe you're going to do what you said you're going to do. We get to look back and say, you did what you said you're going to do. You fully broke in with your new creation in Christ Jesus. The resurrection reality where joy replaces sorrow, where new replaces old, where life replaces death, that happened when he came out of the ground on Easter Sunday. That is what happened. The new creation broke into this world and we get to put our anchor back there as well. And so even as we come to the table this morning and we remember the death of Jesus where he purchased the right to bring about all of God's promises into the world, we also rejoice in the resurrection of Jesus as the moment where God gave the first fruits of this passage saying, I'm gonna do it. As sure as, as he came out of the ground, there will be a day when I will remake the heavens and the earth, says the Lord. These things are certain. We get to put our anchor back there as well. So when we come to the table, we are putting our anchor back there as we look to the day where we have an anchor that God will fulfill all of his promises. And if you believe that, you're a Christian, Come and take communion with us. Take this meal with us. The way we take uh, communion here is we tear a piece of the bread off, dip it into the cup. We have uh, wine in the stoneware, juice in the glassware. We'll have servers up in the front, the middle, and up in the balconies. And we're doing something new today. Uh, down here to my right, to your left, we're going to do, we have gluten-free intinction. I thought people would be excited. Okay. Woo! Uh, so I don't, I, I haven't looked under the, the thing yet, so I don't know exactly how you're going to do it, but you'll be able to figure it out. Um, 
Hey, if, you don't, if you're in this room and you don't put your faith in Jesus, uh, we ask that you not come take this meal with us. This meal is a remembrance meal. This meal is for those who have put their faith in the life, death, resurrection of Jesus, declaring that it is the only way by which God will fully and finally make known all of his promises. It's our only hope in this world. And we are coming as his family, declaring that together. So if that's not your belief, if you don't put your faith there, if you don't rest your hope there, don't come and take this meal with us. Uh, we have prayers in the, in the seat back in front of you. If you wanna know what it might sound like to pray to God this morning, we have some that might help you, uh, but don't come and take this meal. We're really glad you're here. We would ask that you take Christ this morning, not just come and take this meal with us, but uh, if you don't put your hope in him, stay in your seat and, and pray this morning. Uh, the rest of us are gonna respond. I'm gonna pray for us now. The servers will come forward. We're gonna delight in the reality of Jesus Christ as we look for and long for the day when he will make all things new. So God, we, we love you and honor you this morning. Thank you for your good and precious promises. Thank you that your good and precious promises are, Paul says, made yes and amen in Jesus. God, so even as we come to the table this morning and we remember your life, your death, your resurrection, I ask that we would be filled afresh this morning with faith and hope, the certainty of things to come. God, we come before you believing that you are and believing that you are a rewarder of those who seek you. And we remember that because of the death of Jesus, that we have been made whole before you, right before you. But God, in the midst of this world where we still experience the sorrow, the pain, the difficulty, the hardships of this life, of the brokenness of this life, God, would you fill us again with faith? Would you fill us again with hope, with certainty, with joy, with gladness that you are at work and that there will be a day when you will put to death Death, sorrow, pain, sadness, the former things forever. God, I ask, for, I ask for every one of us in this room who does still experience the sorrow of this, this world. God, we, we feel it. We feel it. God, there, there are people in this room who feel it in their bodies. They feel it in their souls. We feel it in our minds. We feel it in our internal worlds. God, as we come to the table, would you remind us again of your goodness, your power, your life? God, and would you give us grace this morning to look to and long for the city whose builder and maker is God? Thank you that we get to receive of you freely. Would you come and nourish us this morning, I ask. In Jesus' name, amen.